I don't need help. I'm not in an abusive relationship. This is just how it is for us. It's a lie we tell ourselves, one that many in abusive relationships repeat until they believe it. But there's hope. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence. This show is about hope. You will hear from survivors of abuse, and their stories may sound familiar. They may even inspire hope. Our goal is to connect with others in these toxic relationships to offer that hope, and with supporters of our mission, anyone willing to help get rid of abuse in our culture. We also talk with the experts in the field, from the officers on the front lines of domestic abuse calls to the therapists and advocates helping survivors navigate this complicated road of recovery. If you're in need of help, please visit our website or call our 24-7 hotline, 800-828-2023. And if this is an emergency and you need help immediately, please call 911. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship with your host, Claudia Pauls. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship. This program is going to be a part two program, so I hope you've been able to listen to Rita's story, um, and Rita's story centered around the molestation she endured from her stepfather. And today, we're going to talk with Krista DeBoer, who is the sexual assault therapist for DASIS. Uh, Welcome, Krista. Nice to see you again. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm actually seeing you from afar as we still are social distancing, but um, Krista's going to talk to us today about uh, trauma bonding, which um, is also part of what Rita went through, and we can kind of go forward from Rita's story. So um, Krista, let's just kind of start with what is trauma bonding? So um, one of the definitions for trauma bonding is a dysfunctional attachment that occurs in the presence of danger, shame, or exploitation. Okay. So the way that I kind of describe that relationship to the abuser between survivor and abuser is it's almost like this internal conflict because often the person is someone that's known and trusted. And so there's this, I maybe have a relationship with this person, but I also don't like what they have done to me. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's this struggle because they've had this relationship that's been abusive. And, and so Many people would think, well, you don't want to have anything to do with them because they've hurt you this way. But sometimes for the person, there's still a tie or a bond or something that's keeping them attached to that person. And that well, is for lots of different reasons. I'm, I'm sure part of that would be they're the person who would tell about what's happening, but they're the person that's doing what's happening. So that's got to be a huge problem and and like you'll see it in Rita's story there was a threat that if she told her family is going to be hurt in some way or killed maybe um and and then it's this thing that keeps the secret even more secret because now there something bad is going to happen and and so it makes it even harder to tell. And sometimes I think that what we as adults kind of forget 
is what it's like to be a child and to be a young child and to not have the the voice that we have as an adult. So it's, it's not always easy and kids don't always have the words, especially in Rita's story. You know, um, it took a little while before she was able to tell a trusted adult. Um, and, and so I think that, um, you know, part of that trauma bond relationship is the power and control that the abuser or perpetrator has because they're using, right. Cause even like that threat is really a manipulation because she says later on, like she didn't know that Mississippi was only 11 hours away. Right. Um, and so it's this, t- this way to twist the truth to keep that secret. And so that the perpetrator can continue to perpetrate. And that whole power and control, which is always the, at the bottom of everything. Um, so what, when people are maybe going to be listening to this podcast and realize maybe they've never heard that term trauma bonding, or maybe they, you know, you see, um, all, you hear programs of, you know, people that have been abducted or whatever, and then begin to be attached to their abductor or whatever. Um, and just starting to realize that this could be part of what is going on with them what you know whether they're dealing with domestic violence or sexual assault what kinds of of advice or or help can you give our listeners um and i think what's kind of important to understand in that and especially you know you mentioned like kidnapping um a lot of times in those relationships that are abusive what the way that they use that power and that control is to um make the situation the way that they want it to be, right? So in, um, I think a really great example um, is the R. Kelly story because there was two girls that um, continued to stay even after everything kind of broke in the news. And, um, and it's because what he was doing really was controlling all of their decisions. So they had to ask when they could have food, when they could go to the bathroom, they were not allowed to talk to anybody, anybody else, sometimes even to each other. They couldn't have cell phones. They couldn't talk to their parents. And so they were very direct strategies to keep people in isolation. And I think that, you know, that's maybe an extreme kind of case, but it's, it happens very subtly almost in the, in with sexual abuse because it's these ways, you know, Rita tried to, um, put on more clothes or to kind of protect herself. And so, and, and she would say, you know, well, he kept finding a way. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's like those methods to kind of isolate and keep that secret safe so that that perpetrator isn't exposed. Um, and so, you know, it's those tactics and those methods to, you know, get the child maybe away from parents, away from trusted people, and, and, and so in that way, it is about that power and control because there is that dynamic, especially, you know, with Rita as a child, that parent-child relationship with her stepfather. So, you know, you have that situation where it's this trusted adult, and yet he's the one that's hurting her as well. And yet he's the one providing the, 
food and the whatever, you know, he's the trusted part. So the, the bonding is there every day. The trauma, maybe not every day, but as that, you know, blooms and they become kind of the same thing, um, which would be present in those domestic violence situations and sexual assault, incestuous relationships that unfortunately so many of our listeners may be dealing with. And I think, um, I, I, you know, in the beginning I called it this conflict. And I think that that's a lot of times what happens kind of like after or, you know, as an adult or whenever you really start processing the experience is that it's this conflict of feeling like guilt and shame and sometimes blame, self-blame for things like I didn't tell, um, you know, I didn't say no, I didn't. And there's a lot of the I didn'ts or I should have. And, um, and, I, and especially with adults who experience abuse as children, um, I find that it's quite common to kind of have that. And one of the, one of the ways I think to talk about that is, um, you know, kids really are powerless and, and they rely on adults to protect them and keep them safe. And so when that doesn't happen, it's really that betrayal of trust. And, and so part of that becomes how do we address the shame, guilt, and sometimes that self-blame to be able to say, I really didn't have a lot of power or control in that situation. Because even if I had said no, well, it may or may not probably wouldn't have stopped. Right, right. Or, you know, what if I had done this? Well, if you had done that, would that have changed the circumstance? Well, probably not because you were a kid and as an adult, they have way more power and control in situations. So maybe not. So being able to kind of get grounded back into this probably would have happened no matter what I did. And I did what I could at the time. So I maybe told a trusted friend like Rita or, you know, as you start to process it, realize this was not my fault. I didn't do this. And I think that in Rita's story too, part of it was, um, you know, if I kind of like take care of my stepfather, then maybe he won't hurt me. And, and I think that that's, um, the reason I pull that out is because I think it's important to realize that the way sometimes that kids think, and maybe as adults too, but they tend to be very um, selfish and self-centered. So the world kind of overall revolves around kids. And the way that we kind of see this <clears throat> is kids kind of take that blame. So if a kid takes a math test and they fail, and then they come home and their parents say, we're gonna get divorced. It's real easy for the kid to say, I failed my math test and because of that, my parents are getting divorced. Mm -hmm. And it's, 
probably there's so much more, you know, that happened before that. But kids tend to make those kind of connections where if I do something bad, then something bad is going to happen. Sure. And so it's that same in that, that trauma relationship, that trauma bond, it's very similar. So if I do something bad, then this bad thing happened. And if I do something good, then maybe this will stop. Mm-hmm. And, and um, that's the, the, what I would call unhelpful thinking. The child trying to figure that they might have some control over that situation. Right. Okay. And, and so part of it for me is, you know, uh, whether you're working with, you know, kids, it's going to maybe happen in a different kind of way um, than maybe with adults. But with the adults, it becomes a lot of recognizing what I should have done is actually putting that present experience, um, and especially with, you know, therapy clients who maybe have hopefully gained some skills, some insight, um, have been able to make you know, different life choices with some of the new knowledge that they have or new understanding. And, and so what I try to say is a lot of that shoulding Mm -hmm. is putting your present experience on the past. And you can't really do that. That's unfair because as a child, you don't have that knowledge. You don't have that wisdom. You don't have necessarily the skills. And so as a kid, you do the best that you can with the knowledge that you have. And now as an adult, you have the insight and the knowledge and the wisdom. And now you can make a different choice or have different options to choose something different. Um, so with kids, it, you know, it might look a little bit different because like in Rita's story, you know, she was rebelling and kind of acting out, um, maybe some places in in the places that she might've had some control or some choice. Right. So, you know, risky relationships or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and so sometimes those are the symptoms that we would see in kids. So maybe their grades drop, maybe they um, start acting out in school. And I think sometimes the harder part of that um, is in a classroom, for example, the kid that's tearing up the classroom, running around, tearing things off walls, it's very clear something is probably happening the harder thing and i think especially with sexual abuse is that because of that guilt blame and shame a lot of it goes on the inside and so that shame can be really silencing so it might not be the kid that's running around tearing up the classroom it could be the kid that's sitting in the corner silently and that's a lot harder because it's a lot harder to see and to catch Right, right. So obviously our goal is is leading to recovery, 
Um, and with children and with adults, they would have so many more choices just physically to be able to be in a different place and um, maybe economically or whatever that a child just doesn't have. Um, so as you're working with children, how do you, gosh, I'm sure you would work with the entire family. How do you lead them to some recovery? Yeah. Um, I think that, oh yeah, I think you mentioned family and I think that's, you know, the most important part. Um, and I know like in Rita's story, there was, I'm sure there were lots of different reasons, you know, that her mother wasn't able to be supportive to her at the time. But I think that one of the, one of the great, um, I'll say resilience factors that kids have is a supportive caregiver, family, people in their lives who will believe them. And, and I think that's kind of the place where it, you know, it all starts. And I can't emphasize enough that safe, trusted adult, um, because sometimes it's easier to talk to somebody that's outside the family that might not have anything to do with the situation to talk to. Um, and, and I think we saw that in Rita's story too with her, I think it was her neighbor. Um, so all those different pieces, and I think it comes back to the people that believe them and say, can say, I believe you. Um, I think for kids, <clears throat> sometimes it's addressing the behavior because um, we want them to be successful because most things for kids have some kind of structure like school or sports or, you know, whatever. So um, I think sometimes it's addressing, um, and sometimes adults struggle with this too, but it's being able to have a language to talk about this thing that happened or, you know, events that happened. Um, and especially to be able to verbalize it because mm -hmm. often what happens um, with trauma and especially childhood trauma is that the part of the brain that shuts down is that verbal part. So what you're really left with is the thoughts and the feelings without a way to talk about it or express it. And sometimes um, for kids and adults what can, who've experienced trauma, what happens is the words sometimes can feel like they're stuck in your throat. Like you might wanna get them out, but they get stuck. And there's no way to kind of like unblock that to get it out. And so a lot of it becomes, how do I talk about it? So what were my thoughts? What were my feelings? Because if I can name it, I mm -hmm. felt sad because I felt hurt when I was angry that all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is really what I was feeling. And, and then to be able to, um, create a narrative about the story. This is what happened. This is um, what I thought. This is what I felt. This is how I've overcome. This is what my future might look like. Um, and, and obviously kids, we do it a different way because usually it's um, movement, activities, uh, worksheets, stories, um, play. 
art. So it might come out in a different way than for adults, although adults tend to like to do similar things. Yeah. Um, but to create this story around my experience, to give it that purpose and that meaning, and also to do what I would call futuring. So <clears throat> this is my experience having processed and worked through it. When I look to the future, so for kids, it could be, you know, I want to be a fireman. I want to have, you know, a dog or kids or an apartment, go to college, whatever it might be. Um, for adults, it, it might be, well, I want to have a healthy relationship or I want to have social connection or, you know, whatever else. So I think it's, you know, being able to talk about that experience and then create that sense of purpose or belonging. And then how do I move forward from here? Right. And, and getting rid of that, it's a secret part <laughs> that then can lead you to thinking about the future rather than just being captured in that. Well, it's a secret. It's going to always live. If it's a secret, it's hard to get past that. So mm -hmm. being able to bring that out for them is huge yeah so leading forward to some some future thinking that's that's just perfect the way you've kind of started with this step and the lead them or or help them see that there is a future once they can get out from under that power and control mm -hmm. yeah and i think i probably said this elsewhere but i think that so much of it and that keeps me in awe is to watch that process happen where victims become survivors, where survivors become empowered, where empowered people use their voice and then their voices change the world. And to see that in survivors is one of the most amazing, I think, gifts because it really does have the power to change the world not just transforming their lives, but often the lives around them. And that's a huge thing. Absolutely, which is kind of our goal with, with hope um, for everyone who's listening today. Thank you so much, Krista. You uh, have led great insight into uh, what is trauma bonding and how you can begin to work through that and really look forward to a future that will be good and hopeful. Thank you, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to I'm Not In an Abusive Relationship. If these stories resonate with you and you need help, please visit our website, dasasmi.org. That's dasasmi.org. Or call our hotline at 800-828-2023. We are here to walk alongside you. Now, if you know someone who might benefit from our show, please share it. Social media, email, simply telling someone about it all help us spread the word and help us to combat domestic and sexual violence. We also welcome financial and volunteer support. That information is on our website. Thank you to the staff, volunteers, and board of directors at Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. This podcast is produced with the help of a committee of dedicated advocates. Thank you to WBET Radio in Sturgis, Michigan for the use of their studio. This has been a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence and a production 
of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services of Michigan.